0: Sit on. Um, I think the thing, Pastor Steve, that you mentioned, you saw what you value. And if you think you saw love in me for others, that's because you value love for others. And I've been watching you all weekend. (laughs) Loving on your people. Cultivating a healthy body of Christ. a Loving body of Christ. A community that's willing, out of the love of God, to be secure enough to look at their stuff. This is a healthy place. And I think it's because they have a healthy pastor. So for our last time together, I want to um, look at the book of Job. And my reason for wanting to look at it and the argument of the book of Job is you have in this book a man who suffered and a man who out of his suffering does not see suffering as an end. We can sometimes play the victim. It's not healthy for us or for those around us. This is a man who suffered, who's trying to understand it, and at the end of the book we find it makes him a wounded healer. And I want to follow that train of thought. So, Father, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit, each of us, to hear what you would have for each one of us. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. I pray that each individual would receive specifically from you what you want for him or her. To have that occur when just one man speaks is nonsense, unless you're involved in the transaction. As Moses prayed, Lord, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. We want your presence to guide us, to fill each person, and give each person what you have for him or her. Amen. Um, uh, C.S. Lewis thought the book of Job was a parable because of the issue of Satan, in some senses, challenging God to test Job, and actually God challenging Satan to consider Job. Lewis has difficulty believing that could actually happen, but maybe parabolically, you could take some liberties with the story. There are lots of opinions as about how Job came about, when it's situated, when it's written. My own opinion, while there's much I don't understand about the book, I've been studying it for 40 years at least, I took a graduate course. I used to be able to read it in the Hebrew. I can't do that anymore. But I used to be able to read it in the Hebrew. I've been immersed in this book. I've been working on a book on this book for many years. There's a lot I don't understand. But I do believe it's historic. It says in the scriptures in Jeremiah 25.20 and in Lamentations 4.21, there was a place called Uz. It was a town in the region of the Edomites. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau. Esau's first son was Eliphaz. One of the characters in the book As Eliphaz the Temanite. Teman was an Edom. The second king of the Edomites was a man named Jobab. I want to suggest to you this Jobab may have been the very Job of this book. There's plenty to produce a smoking gun. There's nothing to make it conclusive. It's my supposition at this particular point. But when we encounter Job, then if I'm right, then it would appear that the book was written by whomever, or at least the events that took place in the book occurred about the time when the Jews were in their first or second generation in Egypt, just after Joseph. And therefore, when it says of Job that he was a righteous man, we could assume that his righteousness was not unlike the righteousness of Abraham who believed God and it was attributed to him as righteousness. Job is a righteous man. He's the greatest man in the East. If he was the king of the Edomites, and by the way, Job 19 seems to refer to the fact that he was in fact a king. He also had great holdings. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, camels were the trucking company of the Middle East at that time. You had caravans that would go across the desert and they would have packs and they would take goods from region to region. He was a person who was a merchant, obviously. He not only had all of that, he had 500 female donkeys, he had 500 yoke of oxen, that's that's a thousand oxen to plow fields and produce goods. And he had seven sons and three daughters. He was wealthy. He was famous. He had everything going for him. He was also a priest to his family. His seven sons would have a feast one night a week. And all the siblings would go to the feast. And then at the end of the week, he would call them all together, and he would offer sacrifices on their behalf in case in the midst of their uh, partying and reveries, they might have said something that blasphemed God. And he was a priest to his family. He was concerned for their spiritual welfare. And all of a sudden, the scene changes after this prologue and introduction, and we're led into heaven. And the Benai Elohim, the angels of God, are coming before the throne of God, and among them is Satan, the accuser. And God says, where have you been? He's been roaming the earth. He says, have you considered my servant Job? I don't like that verse. There's a verse similar to it in Luke's gospel. I think it's verse 20, uh, in chapter 23, where just before Jesus is going to be crucified, he says to Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that when you're restored, you'll be able to restore your brothers also. I don't like that verse because I wish Jesus would have said, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, and I told him to keep his hands off of you. But instead he said, I have prayed for you that when you're restored, when you've learned from the struggles and tragedies, you will be a restorer of your brothers. Something like that's going on in Job. So God says, "If you consider my servant Job? Satan says, are you kidding? He doesn't love you for who you are. You built a fence around him. He's got his stuff. Nobody loves you for who you are, God. If you took away their stuff, they would curse you and they'd curse you till they died because nobody likes you for who you are. They just want you for the stuff. God says, okay, you can take his stuff. And so the scene changes. And we find a marauding band of Chaldeans come and take away his 7,000 camels. And a servant rushes up and says, Job, Job, I was taking care of your camels with your other servants. Chaldeans came, took them away. I alone am left to tell you about it. Before the words are out of his mouth, another servant comes up. Job, I was tending your sheep with your other servants. Fire fell from heaven and consumed all seven's." 7,000 sheep and all your servants, and I alone am left to tell you about it. Before the words are out of his mouth, another one comes rushing up. Job, a band of Sabaeans came, and they took away your plowing oxen and your donkeys and killed your servants. I alone am left to tell you about it. And before the words are out of his mouth, another servant comes up and says, Job, Job, I was with your sons and daughters while they were feasting. A great wind came up, blew down the four corners of the house. All of your children and all of the servants who were attending them have been wiped out. Imagine it. Job tears his clothes and puts on ashes and sackcloth. He sits on an ash heap. And he says, naked I came into this world, naked I shall depart. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He may take my stuff, but if I've got him, somehow, somehow, I'm going to get through this. And at that point, I say, this guy, Job, was made of different stuff than I'm made of. Scene changes back to heaven. The Beni Elohim, the angels of God, come before the throne of God. Satan happens to come among them. And God says to Satan, did you consider my servant Job? He did not curse me or blaspheme, even though you incited me against him. And Satan says, skin for skin. He didn't care about that stuff. He only cares about himself because nobody cares about anything, really. They just care about themselves. Does that sound a little projective by Satan? This most incredibly self-referential, narcissistic, entity in the universe. He said, but you take away his health, and he'll curse you, and he'll curse you till he dies. And God says, okay, you can take away his health, but you can't take away his life. He's stricken with elephant, leprous elephantiasis, boils from head to foot, and he's scraping himself with a potsherd that boils on his body, and his wife comes to him and says, why don't you curse God and die? And he says, you talk like one of the heathen women. Should we accept good from God and not adversity also? Is our faith only conditioned in the good times? And he doesn't sin against God. All of a sudden, some friends come to visit him. They've heard of his calamity. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namathite. Eliphaz represents the wisdom of age. In the three cycles of discourse that will follow, he goes first. Bildad the Shuhite represents the wisdom of tradition. He's constantly quoting the past and what others have said, and the wisdom of the past. Zophar the Namathite, he represents the wisdom of bumper sticker theology. He's got a pad answer for everything, and there's no depth to him whatsoever. They sit with Job for seven days. Don't say a thing. And finally Job speaks out and he said, I wish I had never been born. I wish I had gone from womb to tomb. And Eliphaz responds to him. Job responds to Eliphaz. Bildad responds to Job. Job responds to Bildad. Zophar, the bumper sticker guy, he responds and Job responds to him. Then Eliphaz responds again and then Build that and then Zophar, then Eliphaz, Bildad. Zophar is so upset, the last round of discourses, he doesn't respond at all. And this give and take goes on for many chapters. It's the bulk of the book. What's going on in those chapters? Job's calamity is causing him to ask deep questions. Questions he might not have asked had he not suffered. They're honest questions. The friends, on the other hand, who have not suffered, they begin to project on Job. You can go through your Bible. I go through mine every time I read through this book. I mark in different colors the things the friends say. All three discourses, they say the same thing. Sometimes they say all three things in each one of their talks. Sometimes they say two of these three elements. But what they basically say is something true misapplied. First, they say all sin, that's true. Their application, you're a dirty, rotten sinner, Job. That's false. Said he was a righteous man. He had dealt with the sin issue. Somehow, he trusted God. Second thing they say, sin equals trouble. That's true. They say, you've got trouble, Job. You must be a sinner. That's not true. I know all kinds of people who have gone through troubles because of the sins of others towards them. Plus, if you want to know the person who had the most trouble in his life, it was Jesus when he bore our sins on his shoulders at Calvary. He was totally innocent. Trouble doesn't necessarily mean sin, but they project that on Job. Third, if you confess, God will forgive you. That's true. But they say, Job, you've still got trouble, so clearly you haven't confessed. You must have secret sins. Matter of fact, your trouble's so bad, you must have done despicable things. And to protect their theology, rather than adjusting their theology to the reality of Job's experience, they begin to project on Job. They say, you must have done deplorable things. You must have taken orphans when nobody was looking broke their arms. You must have seen people when you're going through your caravans dying of thirst in the desert and you must have withheld from them the water that you had in ample supply. Job, you must have done this, you must have done that. And they just project on him, horrible things. The friends do not develop, they just get louder and more obnoxious. Have you ever been in another culture where you don't know the language? You go to that culture, and you want to be heard, so what do you do? You just talk slower and louder and think that's going to help, and that's the friends. They don't grow. They don't change. They just get louder. Job, on the other hand, there's real change. In his suffering, he begins to see his present conceptual framework isn't robust enough to deal with the incoming data, and so consequently, he probably had something like the theology of the friends, but he knows his experience counts against it, so he changes. And then he begins to say, I know I'm suffering in a way that's not commensurate with anything I've done. I want to go before God and plead my case, because when God hears my case, he'll certainly answer. And then he begins to doubt God's character. And he says, I don't think I want to go before God. I want an umpire. I want a redeemer. I want to go-between. His suffering is up and down. It's waves. He has some high moments. In chapter 13, he says, Though he slay me, I will trust him. That's remarkable, tenacious faith. In in, in chapter 19, that passage, it's quoted by Handel in the Messiah. I know my Redeemer liveth, and he will take his stand upon the earth. You know the passage. It's an interesting passage because he says, "I know my redeemer lives, and he will take a stand upon the earth." You have different words for earth in the Old Testament. You have the Hebrew word haaretz. Listen to Genesis one one: bara Elohim, eth wa haaretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Haaretz is earth. It's used over two thousand times in the Old Testament. It's not the word Job uses. Another word for earth is a word that means tillable soil. It's the word adam, from which the name Adam, who is a name made from the dusty earth, comes. That's not the word he uses. He uses a very obscure word for earth. It's the word apar. You know what apar is? An ash heap. Where was Job. I know my Redeemer lives, and he will take his stand upon the ash heap. He will come and stand in my place. He's looking for an incarnate reality, somebody who understands what it is to be human, who understands what it is to suffer. And I would say beyond Job's present conception, understands what it means to be wounded healer. Well, the friends are finally sick of Job, and they stop talking. And Job then delivers five soliloquies. In chapter 27, he asserts his integrity. Chapter 28, he has a quest for wisdom. Where can wisdom be found? We know where they dig up gold. We know where they dig up silver and jewels. But who knows where they mine wisdom? And then he ends that chapter with the fear of the Lord is a beginning of wisdom and to depart from evil is understanding. In chapter 29, he longs for the good old days before the suffering happened. We can give him that. We understand why somebody would long for those days. Chapter 30, he starts feeling a little sorry for himself, a pity party. Chapter 31, once again, he asserts his integrity. At that particular moment, Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite, can you imagine naming a child that? Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzite, speaks up. Where has he been? Some people think that some redactor inserted him. I don't believe it. I don't think the three friends were the only one to show up to see Job in his calamity. He was a great man. My guess is crowds had gathered around trying to understand this thing. Elihu, the reason why I believe he was there, in his statements... He recounts everything the friends said, and he recounts everything that Job has said. He has been attentive. And he says to the friends, you haven't spoken accurately about Job, nor have you answered his questions. He says to Job, Job, there's also been some things that you haven't understood about God. And I believe that Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzzite, is kind of like John the Baptist in the New Testament, who's a forerunner to Christ. So Elihu is kind of the forerunner to the speeches of God when he speaks. Elihu says some elegant things, and at the end of it, he says this. Whether for correction or for his world or for loving kindness, God causes it to happen. There's at least three reasons why God does things. If God's omniscient, there may be more than that, but he recounts three. Sometimes God does things to correct us. Sometimes God does things for his greater world, and we may come in conflict in our estimation of those things, or sometimes he does it for loving kindness. There's an extension of his plan for loving kindness and mercy for the world that may be beyond our grasp at a particular moment, and we may be participating in the redemptive process. Peter says in 2 Peter that God's not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards us, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. In Ezekiel it says God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would repent. Well, in the time when the wicked are doing bad things, That means the world may be going on and righteous people may be suffering, but God is waiting for those people to repent. That means the righteous people may be having to learn Christ-like responses because they're bearing the difficulty these people are doing while God's waiting patiently for them to come to faith. And, And Paul says the same thing in Colossians 1. We fill up the sufferings of Christ. We may endure in a world where God is waiting for people to respond to him. Where, people is, where, where God has given all in Christ. And so this is the sort of thing Elihu has said. And then all of a sudden, God shows up. in the whirlwind. And he speaks twice to Job. And in his two speeches to Job, he says the same thing at the beginning of the speech. Gird up your loins like a man, Job, and I will ask you and you instruct me. It's kind of ludicrous. Put on your pants, Job, and I'm going to sit in the student's seat, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. So the first speech, here's Job, and God says, okay, Job, I got a question. as your student. Where were you, Job, when I created the universe? I don't remember the Job Universe consulting firm being around at that time. Job, do you have the capacities I have? Could you take the ocean and diaper them, he says? Swaddle them and put them in their boundaries and tell them you can go no further? Job, do you know how to command the dawn? Have you spoken to the storms? Job, do you keep the constellations in their places? He goes on to say, do you take care of the lions young? And when the ostrich abandons its eggs in the sand, do you watch over them so that they'll hatch out and continue that species? He continues to say stuff like this. Job, can you allow water to evaporate from the seas and form clouds and bring winds to blow those clouds to waterless places so that grass could grow places where human eyes never see? Do you really understand the big picture, Job? Do you understand how an eagle soars? Job, can you, have you, will you, do you? And he keeps asking these questions. And all of a sudden, Job goes, I'm a pea brain. This thing is really big. And maybe I'm experiencing my little piece of it. But I think God's got some bigger plans here. And Job says, I put my hand on my mouth. I spoke too soon. Things that are too wonderful for me. Things that are beyond my present grasp. Second speech. God says, Job, gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Put your pants on, Job. Stand up as a teacher. And I want to ask you some questions. Will you really annul my judgment that you might be justified? Oh, people, we all know the idea of self-justification. We talked about acrasia. continued disobedience to conscience makes conscience blind. We justify our bad acts. We justify our misunderstanding. We're in conflict with somebody else. We don't often try to understand them. We just try to project on them what we understand about ourselves and the pain we've experienced. Would you justify yourself in order to annul my judgment? We see at the foot of the cross all these people that come to Jesus and they say to him, If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross and save yourself. They don't even think that maybe he didn't come to save himself, but to save lost humanity. Will you know my judgment that you might be justified? Okay, Job, we're going to try and experiment. We're going to let you play God of the universe. Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity. Clothe yourself with majesty. And we'll plug in the DVD and see what the universe looks like when you're in charge. He says, well, then I say to you, Job, you'll humble the proud. Drive them into the mud. And the wicked, you'll destroy all the wicked. And I say to you, Job, your own right hand can save you. In that verse is the answer to the book of Job. Job, you would justify yourself at the expense of the universe. By contrast, Job hears the implication from God. I seek to justify the willing of this world at my expense. I am willing to suffer that redemption might occur in the universe. And for all who would follow him, my guess is they will participate in the suffering, not as an end, but as a means towards redemption. At the end of the book, God says, forget the universe, Job. You're you're not gonna be able to do it. Just take a little portion of the universe. Take a crocodile or a hippopotamus. Throw your fishing line in the water. Pull out one alligator. Pull out one crocodile. You'll remember the fight. You can't even control a little part of it. You want ascendancy as if you somehow have divine perspective on these things? And Job gets it. I misunderstood. I didn't realize the redemptive plan and the part that my suffering plays in that. And the Bible says that God restored Job. You know when he restored him? 42 42.10 when he prayed for his friends. He had been a priest to his family. Through his suffering, God extended the franchise and now made him a priest even to people who hurt him. And he restores him twofold when he prays for his friends. The restoration itself is remarkable. He had 7,000 sheep, how many sheep does he get? Anybody? 14,000. He had 3,000 camels. How many camels does he get? Shout it out. Six. He had 500 yoke of oxen. How many does he get? He had 500 asses. How many does he get? He had seven sons and three daughters. How many does he get? He doesn't get 14 and six. He gets seven and three. Why? Because just because the first seven and three died, they didn't cease to exist. He would be reunited with them. He gets twofold when he gets seven and three. It's a brilliant resurrection passage. It's also a passage that says you want to understand these things fully, you've got to look beyond time to God's transcendent purposes. And so here it is, the book of Job. I just recount the argument to you just to say this. God has said in one of the oldest books of the Bible, he has a redemptive plan. His redemptive plan in a fallen world will involve suffering. But God's purpose in suffering is always redemptive. And you have suffered in your life. And you have to deal with your Manasseh experiences, learning to grieve and forgive in the hopes that Ephraim might be born in you, and that fruitfulness might occur as you even love the people who hurt you like God loved us and like God wants to love them through you. I don't know about you, but it says in Luke 6, if you love those who love you, what token is that to you? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? But I say to you, love those who have hurt you, and then you will be like sons of the Most High and daughters of the Most High. Let's pray. Father, we look at this stuff and we say, boy, I'm not there yet. Sometimes it makes me nervous to wonder what kind of pain I might have to go through to get there. But I know I wanna be more like your son, Jesus. And I know Jesus was like the things you instructed Job to begin to incline towards. Oh, Father, be gentle with us as you transform us. Be merciful towards us. And help us too, Father, to see beyond our present sight that we might trust you more thoroughly as you work in us those qualities that will be like the Lord Jesus as we participate in this world in this hour in your redemptive purposes, that others might know you, that we might bear the suffering that your son endured and that we need to endure in order for others to know you. And we ask this all in Jesus' name and for his glory, amen.